All right, so I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, there's a lot wrong like in the world and also in the church and also in our families and also in our own souls. And it can be a lot. It can be really tough to deal with all of that, in fact, because there's brokenness within and without. And we might think, I am living in the absolute worst time that there ever was, bar none. We're confused about what it means to be a human being. Uh, Everything from gender to the soul to everything, confusion abounds. And it seems like people are more depressed and anxious than they've ever been. Great talk so far, right? (laughs) Um, I think it's important to realize our family has been through a lot. Right, our, our Catholic family, which uh, one of us here just joined the Catholic family. I'm sure some of you might, might be Catholic right now. Others might be like, yeah, somebody just told me to come. I came for the booze, but I guess I'll stay for the talk. Uh, regardless of where you're at with that, I think it's good to look at history and realize, wow, we have lived through some doozies. Because our, our faith started at... In a, in a very real sense, on the darkest day the world had ever seen, right? Traditionally, uh, we have seen the birth of the church being from the pierced side of Christ, that the sacraments flowed forth, the blood and water symbolizing baptism and the Holy Eucharist. We saw that at the darkest moment, when humanity literally killed God, that was the beginning. A- and for the first 300 years, The Christians were being killed. Yes, there were times of peace, but then there were fierce persecutions where our first brothers and sisters were being massacred. And then it was legalized and everything was better, right? In the church of the 300s and the 400s and the 500s, what was going on? Heresy, confusion, debate. There was a time when most of the bishops in the church did not believe that Jesus was God. Right? The Nestorian heresy was just spreading like wildfire. Some of the saints in the church were being exiled by the leaders of the church. Pretty tough times. After that, there was the downfall of Rome. The Roman Empire had collapsed. It had imploded. Really, from the weight of the sinfulness would be what St. Augustine would say, that it was imploding because it had departed so from, far from virtue and from the nature that God had created us to uh, be able to live by. And in that downfall, in all of that destruction, Rome was being continuously sacked. Society had been upended. And yet the church survived through that. Then there was the split between East and West, right, at uh, the the turn of the millennium. There was this divide within the church that we could not stay together. A lot of it was linguistic and cultural, but some of it was theological. And there was a split. But somehow we survived that. Then what happened in the late Middle Ages? It was kind of a bummer for a third of Europe. The plague, yeah, yeah, kind of killed everybody almost. But somehow the church survived from that. After that came the Protestant Revolution. 
and all the, the revolutions that followed that kept on upending society and dividing so many, sowing seeds of confusion. Now, why would I go through this litany of the worst things ever? Why? Because we need to look at the fact that in every single one of those periods, the Lord raised up great saints. And it wasn't just institutional change that ended up keeping the church going. It wasn't just that they would pick it outside of the, the, the rulers' homes and say, we need change. No, it was that they lived lives utterly devoted to the Lord. And he was able to work through them to get the church through the worst possible times. And I'd like to focus on, thank you very much. I would like to focus on two prisoners. One was in the first century and the other one was in the 20th century. Both prisoners of cruel, unjust governments. And they ended up surviving. Not surviving in the sense of not being killed, but surviving in the sense that we remember them. We know that they reign with the Lord in heaven, but those governments are no longer. We've got Paul of Tarsus, right? Heard of him? St. Paul, imprisoned by the Jews, by the Romans, ended up being beheaded, but from prison, what was it that he wrote to the Philippians? Who can tell me? Philippians 4.4. Not all at once. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. It's on the tip of your tongues. Come on, guys. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And he's just echoing in the Old Testament. When the people were coming back from exile, and, and, and they went to Jerusalem, and they realized, oh, this city that was supposed to be God's promise to us here on earth, that if we lived in covenant with him, this would have been where the... the the, this would have been the light to the nations, right? This would have been where the restoration of all mankind would have happened, but instead the city was in ruins and there was no wall to keep the people safe. And through Nehemiah, the Lord said something similar. He said, the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. Paul from prison says rejoice. The people of the Old Testament are told if they want to be strong, they must rejoice. And then... Fast forward, 20 centuries from Paul, you have a man named Maximilian Kolbe. Who here has ever heard of him? Yes, yeah, Maximilian Kolbe, fantastic priest. He, when he is being imprisoned and starved to death in a Nazi concentration camp, is singing hymns of joy. And he lived so long nourished by this joy that God was giving him, that starvation didn't work. They ended up having to kill him by lethal injection. Now, I mention all of these things because we're living through tough times right now, but it's not the first time that the church has had to face difficulty. The saints have responded not with what our default is, but with the default that should characterize a saint of God. What is that? Not anger, but joy. Yes, there is a place for that righteous anger that moves me to action, but it's meant to be something temporary rather than the permanent state that I take on to myself. And we, as a society, are so angry at each other's throats all the time, and it's eating us up from the inside. 
And sadly, not only in society is that the case, but in the church I see it. And if you don't think that's the case in the church, go on any Catholic blog, anywhere. Go into the comments section. Bring some tissues because you're going to weep, right? We are just awful to each other. And I think that's why things aren't changing for the better. Because instead of taking the route of the saints, which is joy, we're just going through the ways of the world, which is anger. But how can we have joy, right? From St. Paul to St. Maximilian Kolbe, in the worst of situations, they still had joy. Well, joy is possible because of something that Jesus said. He said, behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the earth. Now, he's with us, and we might say, well, yes, I get it, you're spiritually with us. Or we could say, yes, I get it, you behold all creation and existence, so I guess you're with me sustaining my existence. Great. But he says, no, you don't understand. I'm not just with you because I have to be in order for you to be alive. I'm not just with you in some vague spiritual sense. Yes, I'm with you through the Holy Spirit that I sent you. But I also want to be with you in flesh and blood because you are made of flesh and blood. I, I, I want to accompany you through everything that you're going through because I know that you need me. See, that's what the Lord says to us in the Eucharist, which becomes for us that source of our joy, that cause of our strength that we need to become those saints that are the only way that the church can move forward through today's trying times. Right? You may have gone through history and just been like checking the boxes, like, yep, that's happening right now, that's happening right now, and you're like, we've got a cocktail of all these terrible things. Well, how about we become the saints that the world needs at this moment? That's why I'm so grateful that the bishops uh, in our country agreed to have a Eucharistic revival over the next few years. Actually, we're in it right now. It's a three-year Eucharistic revival and it's necessary because we've forgotten that he's with us. And so we've forgotten how to rejoice in the midst of trial because we think that we have to do it alone. We think that we need to put on the Savior cape and save everything. And when we get frustrated that we're not capable of fixing our family, that we're not capable of uh, redeeming our own selves, that we're not capable of just through mere political action changing uh, the way society works. We need to realize that the actual Savior is there with us and that we can go to him frequently. Yes, with every prayer we can be spiritually present before him, but there's a special kind of presence that he has. That his body, blood, soul, and divinity is there just as truly as it was in the crib in Bethlehem. Just as truly it was on the cross in Jerusalem, the Lord is there in every single tabernacle, in every single monstrance, in those priests' hands, at uh, the elevation at Mass, and on your tongue when you receive Him. You might say, yes, Father, I get it. I, 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 I already go to adoration. I've already gone to Mass. That's great. But you can always go deeper. You can always have a renewed devotion, but also you can maybe look at what's difficult about this for some of my friends and family and how can I learn to explain it a little bit better? Because Jesus didn't just come into the Eucharist, come to you in the Eucharist just for you. 
He came for everybody that you ever love. He actually came also for everybody that you hate. And, and, and so these days of the Eucharistic revival are for us to have a renewed love and devotion for our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, but also for us to equip ourselves to bring people to him in this Blessed Sacrament. All right. So, the Lord is with us always. Not just in a vague spiritual sense, but in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. How could we possibly believe that? Right Before we get into how can we better participate in Mass, how can we better uh, adore the Lord in the Eucharist, uh, in adoration, uh, before we get to all of those kind of practical how-dos, I think we need to step back and say, are we crazy for believing this? Because it's kind of a wild thing that the Lord would step into creation and become the very nourishment that we need. So, First, before I give my thoughts, who has a quick 30-second... If somebody asks you about that and just says, I hear that you Catholics believe that Jesus... That you Catholics believe that that wafer is Jesus. I don't believe it. Sell me on it now. What do you say? My friend was a Okay, so it's kind of through the negative route. He, he said he had a, a, a friend who was a Satanist who desperately wanted to go to Mass to be able to get a host to desecrate a host. And, and there's this sense there that you recognize whatever the evil one's going to attack might be the most godly thing, <laughs> right? That's why he uh, attacks the family, because that is the very... Um, the very living image of the Trinity. That's why there is a black mass rather than a black worship service, right? It, it, it is because, as Scripture says, Satan or the devil believes as well and trembles, right? Just recognizing that Jesus is there um, is one thing, but even the demons recognize that he's there, and that's why there is this rise, and sadly there's been a rise in uh, a lot of desecration of the Blessed Sacrament because yeah, the evil one knows he's there, and so he wants to attack it. All right, so that's one route. But what if somebody said, explain it to me, right? I just don't get it. Like, why do you take Jesus at his word there? Why not think that he's just saying that symbolically? So I've worked, uh, we're all Christians at work, but they make fun of me because I'm Catholic. Ah. Uh, but I, my comeback to that one is that when he said, this is my body, he didn't stutter. Ah. Yeah, when he said, this is my body, he didn't stutter. He also didn't say, this is a symbol of my body. And in John chapter 6, he makes it abundantly clear, and people leave over it. And if he's here to redeem these people, if he is here because he has the words of everlasting life, and, and, and literally, if people leave him, they leave salvation... If he didn't mean what he said, wouldn't he say, like, whoa, 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 guys, guys, I didn't mean that literally. Like, come on, come back. Instead, he turned to the 12 and said, are you going to go too? All right, what else? What else? This is good stuff. The science backs it up. The science backs it up. Let's hear it. Like the Eucharistic miracles, all of them having the same blood type, AD, having myopathy, 
I love it. The science backs it up, he says. Because, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, there are so many Eucharistic miracles. Really, the most incredible thing is that the Word made flesh is then brought to us in the Blessed Sacrament and the appearance doesn't change, but the substance does. That's already the most mind-boggling thing. Every now and then, Jesus does something that might be actually a little bit less extraordinary. He lets the appearance change too. He says, okay, this time the appearance and the substance will both change. And you're able to see what looks and tastes and smells like flesh and blood. And people say like, oh, that's crazy. That, uh, those are all hoaxes. Well, these people spanning different uh, centuries and corners of the globe seem to somehow be on the same page because all of the ones we've had tested have been tissue of the heart with the same blood type. And it has been tissue of the heart that, as you said, is under severe stress. They can tell, I think, from some of the enzymes released or something like that. He's the med student. He'll tell you all about it later on. But the reason why I'm asking you and engaging you is because all of us, as Scripture says, need to be prepared to give a defense, a reason for the hope that we have. And one of the most mind-boggling teachings that we have is the one that's kind of at the center of it all. I mean, the absolute center is the Trinity, but that Trinity loves us so much that the second person of the Trinity is present to us in person, in the Blessed Sacrament. Now, I'd encourage you all tonight, because one talk is not going to give you all of the talking points. And in fact, you might study for a, a year straight, trying to get every single argument, but then eventually you're going to meet someone who asks you a question that you're not prepared for. And that's not a defeat, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to say, with all humility, you know what? I've never thought of that. You know what, can we, can we talk about it next week? Because I'd like to do a little bit of research. Or actually, if you want, we can go together. We can maybe read the same article, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Because if you are a mystery, and you all are, right, you probably don't even get you, <laughs> and why you do the things you do, why you say the things you do. If little you is this incredible mystery that you will never be able to wrap your mind around, doesn't it make sense that God would be a mystery as well? Now, mystery isn't just some trump card of like, oh, and that's, that's how I get away with not thinking critically. No, mystery means that I get, to, uh, I get to pierce this with my mind without having my mind be able to envelop it. What's a better way of putting that? It is that I will be able to have a true and genuine understanding but I am never going to exhaust what this thing is. Like any of you, I can get to know you. Like today, it would be very superficial, just your name. But we talk every single day for a year. I'm going to know a lot about you. But that mystery is not going to be exhausted. I'm going to have genuine knowledge of who you are. But I'm not going to have you figured out. There's still going to be more that I cannot wrap my head around because you are bigger than my mind. Well, God is infinitely bigger. And so there's always going to be more that we can understand, a better way that we can frame an argument. And if there is nothing else that you get from this talk tonight, I hope that you get a little inspiration 
to explore the mystery of our Lord in the Eucharist a little bit more. To become those people that can be apostles of this great teaching of our faith. That can go out and bring people to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. So each of us have, you know, different directions that we would go with our defense. But ultimately, you know how people say that something can be too good to be true? I think that's where some people are with the Eucharist. They think like, no, no, that can't, can't possibly be true. <laughs> like, if that's the case, why, why is not everybody at Mass all of the time? If that's really Jesus, why are you Catholics still super sinful? If that is really Jesus, I just cannot believe it. That's too good to be true. I would kind of say it's too good not to be true. Because if you understand the logic of love, love doesn't have in its lexicon, the word enough, right? If you're madly in love with someone, if they say like, okay, um, would you like to uh, hang out with me um, for like five minutes? They they wouldn't say like, yeah, five minutes is enough. No, they'd say like, no, 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 I want more. And I was like, okay, maybe 15. No, 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 I want more. And in fact, if there is such love there, they might even say, I want, I want every minute for the rest of the year. Not like in a clingy way, like still have friends and stuff. Uh, but to be able to say, like, I want to be sacramentally united to you for the rest of my life. Because enough doesn't factor into love. Well, looking at things through the logic of love, you recognize There was this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that did not need to create, had zero need to create anything. Sometimes we try to wrap our minds around that and we can't. So we try to give God a purpose for creation and we say, oh, he was probably just bored or he wanted somebody to love or he just wanted pets, right? (laughs) We're not his pets. We are not the result of his boredom. We are not something that he needs. We are not slaves that he needs to do his bidding. We're not his entertainment. We are the result of his love. We are an essential piece of the clock that keeps on turning. We are important to him. We are absolutely important to him, and we are not necessary to him. We are necessary to him in the sense that he has made us necessary We're all part of it. We're not all part of God, right? God is in and of himself, perfectly self-sufficient. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that eternal communion of love could have gone going, or it could have kept going without any need of creation and would not be lacking anything. But he, in his superabundant love, said, I want to create because I love them. Like he, he loved us into existence. But friends, let's pause there for a second. Creation's already wild. And and science bears out that the universe did have a beginning. For a while they were saying like, nope, 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 no beginning. And, And now all of this speculative thinking is trying to avoid the fact that we live in creation. Right? So everybody's positing, not everybody, but many people are positing, oh, there must be a multiverse or an infinite series of universes that one led to the other, led to the other. And it's like, well, that's cool science fiction, bro. Like, I I really like that you're thinking creatively and out of the box, but you have zero evidence of that. All of the evidence moving to creation. 
And creation out of nothing is something we cannot understand. It's something that we can understand to a point, but that's already incredible. Then let's step into the next level of incredible. And that is that the God who created everything stepped into his creation. The incarnation is already mind-boggling. And so the Eucharist is a bit less of a jump. This is what I like to use with, um, with uh, non-Catholic Christians. When they say, like, no, 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 it is impossible for bread to become, uh, to become the body of Christ. That is just impossible. I'm like, well, I mean, it's also kind of, like, if we want to limit things, like God's power, it's also kind of impossible for God to become man. Like, if you want to put those limits on divine love, then you have to have the impossibility here and the impossibility there. The God who created everything can step into his creation. And the God who created everything out of nothing can change the substance of something from one thing to another. The question would be, why would he do that? Well, he would only do that if he were madly in love. He would only do that if enough weren't in his vocabulary. If he couldn't get close enough or be with us enough, were it not that he were with us this way? Because it'd kind of be a cruel joke if he came in the flesh for 33 years. And it was like a small group of people got to see him, and then he left, and we just got to hear about it. And we were like, oh, God came, and then he left, and now we're waiting for him to come again, and sometimes he, like, sends us a note, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of kind of tough. We were really like anticipating his coming literally since uh, we turned back on him. But um, yeah, I'm sure he'll come someday to help us. That's how a lot of us live out our Christianity. We assume that God is so far away and that the only time that I will ever be able to have a closeness to him is in the second coming. And God's saying, I'm here right now. I'm accessible to you at every prayer. Right, at every moment he is there, but in the Eucharist in the most special way. He is personally present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And it's no more incredible than the incarnation. It's no more incredible than creation out of nothing. And yet we hold those two truths in common with all the other Christians. It might be our job to be the bridge that helps them Come to that third truth. That God not only loved the world so much that he came and left, but that when he said, behold, I am with you always unto the end of the ages, he meant it. And he's with us in the blessed sacrament. All right. So there's going to be many more ways to explain the Eucharist. And that's not actually the, the, the point of this talk. The point of this talk is how can we let the Eucharist be the source of our joy? And I think one of the main ways that it can become the source of our joy is that it gives us the recognition that God is with us. He's in solidarity with us. That he has made himself a prisoner of the tabernacle so that he can free us from the prison of isolation from him. And it reminds me of a story of Alexander the Great. Any of you ever heard him? 
Yeah, kind of, kind of big deal in history, right? Uh, so there's this story told of him that he had his vast army, and they were crossing a desert, and it was a blisteringly hot day. And guys were just passing out of heat stroke, left and right, and they, they didn't have enough water. And they were getting kind of close to a city, but it would still be a little ways until they got there. And one of the, the runners that went out to scout the city came back, and he had just a little bit of water. And of course, that's going to go to Alexander the Great. He's the leader. He needs this water. And so he gets this water. All of the armies looking at him. Nobody would fault him for taking a nice swig and saying, Oh, okay. Trust me, there's water close by. Follow me. Instead, he looks at his men. And he pours the water out onto the sand. And he does that to say, I'm with you until you drink, I don't drink. Now, the Eucharist can be the cause of our joy and the source of our strength because we recognize God is a leader who's with us. All the way in the Old Testament, he was the one journeying with his people, Israel, right? In the uh, cloud of fire and the pillar of smoke, he was there guiding them through all the dangers, through all the difficulty. He was present. But then when they had to go into battle, his presence in the Ark of the Covenant was what gave them joy and gave them strength. And those two were always connected, right? That you, you saw that they had the strength for the battle because they had joy in the Lord's presence. Well, all of that is fulfilled most gloriously in the Eucharist, where the Lord is present with us and doesn't just want to go in front of us or be behind us, doesn't want to just envelop us with his love. He wants to fill us with himself. Right? He does that in the sacraments through the Holy Spirit, but then in a very special way when we receive communion, we are more incorporated into his body because he fills us with his presence for that glorious moment that we receive. Now, I truly believe that that is what kept the saints going. Through all of the difficulties that we spoke of, it was because they knew that God was with them. Yes, in their prayers, but in the most special way in the sacrifice of the Mass. And so I can ask you, how do you enter into the sacrifice of the Mass? Is it with a, an attitude of grateful joy or angry criticism? <laughs> Right, because very often, and this happened to me when I first started getting into the faith, the, the, the very next mo moment for me, so first it was like, wait, that's really Jesus? Like, he's actually there. And I'm just like looking around like, don't you all get it? Like, that's really Jesus. And instead of lingering in that joy, I moved to a place of criticism so quickly. It became, these people don't get it. Idiots. Fools, irreverent heretics. <laughs> and then the priest, I started realizing, so there's the red and then there's the black, right? So when the priest says mass, he has in his missile uh, the red, which is the, the rubrics. This is what you're supposed to do. And the black is what you're supposed to say. And I started realizing not all the priests do that. And instead of saying, God, you love us so much, you're still coming down. Yes, I have my, my legitimate criticisms, but I am more in awe 
that you're here? I started becoming the critic there too, like, mm, Father so-and-so's here. He probably doesn't even believe. I'm not going to ever talk to him about it, but I'm going to talk to everybody else about it, Bishop included. But I'm never going to talk to him about it, no, because uh, he doesn't believe like I believe. And, and, and so we can have this most incredible thing happen where God made, man, God made man is becoming flesh before our eyes, where he is transforming the substance of bread and wine into his body and blood for love of us to be our nourishment, to be our strength, to be our joy. And instead of receiving that joy, we're just like, he preached too long. <laughs> like, friends, you might have the worst experience at Mass possible. It might be that it is way too hot or way too cold. You are surrounded by people who are just texting on their phones. Uh, you, you might have a homily that not only is not understandable, but when you do catch a word, you're like, why is he talking about that? And then he talks about that for 40 minutes. And the music might just be like nails on a chalkboard. Terrible. And you should still rejoice because God is there. And he might be just as annoyed as you are with all of those things. He might say, I wish this music glorified me more. He might say, yeah, I wish they paid more attention. Yeah, I wish the priest did what he's supposed to do. I wish that he prepared better for this homily. But you know what I wish more? I wish that you recognize that I'm here loving you. And I wish that you can maybe draw close to me here. Because you got some stuff going on, and I want to talk about that stuff. And so how do we encounter joy by in encountering Jesus in the Mass? It's by letting our focus be on Him more than on anything else. Uh, another good vignette from Scripture that I think helps us out is Joseph and Mary. You've heard of them? Yeah, okay. So they are going to Bethlehem. When Mary is nine months pregnant, has anybody here seen a nine-month pregnant woman on a donkey in a desert? She would probably not be particularly happy at that moment. And they had a choice. They had a choice right then and there to focus on their anger at this unjust government, forcing them into a census, making them traverse the country to go to this other place. They had a choice to focus on the physical discomfort of the journey. They had a choice to focus on their fears of not knowing if there was going to be a place. Spoiler alert, there was no place for them. Uh, they could have focused on any of those awful, terrible, no good things. I can almost guarantee their focus was on Jesus. That Joseph, instead of focusing on his insecurities as a man at that moment, of saying, oh, I'm supposed to provide for my family, and my family happens to be immaculate other than me. <laughs> I think he was more looking at Jesus in the womb of Mary. Looking at Mary and saying, I'm the luckiest man in the world. And would that we Catholics looked at the Eucharist and the church that way. To, to, to where even if there are legitimate complaints, we don't let them rob us of our joy. That when we go to Mass, yes, when we have a, ch a chance to actually change something, I hope that we step up to the plate and we do. And we keep on improving and striving for excellence. But in the meantime, we don't become captives of anger, frustration, a spirit of criticism. 
and everything that takes away our joy. Because the Lord came to give us joy, right? He, he, he made that very clear. He said, I have said these things so that you may have joy. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We receive that when we focus on him more than we focus on all that's not him. So that's Mass. But before we move on to adoration, another note on Mass. Why do you go to Mass? To worship. To worship? What else? To receive the Eucharist. To, receive the Eucharist. to petition. To petition. Obligation. Because it's fun? I hope so. It's fun for me. <laughs> To give thanks? Yes, all, all of the above. Those are all excellent answers. But we go, I actually really like the obligation one. We go because, because God literally said so. <laughs> right? right? God said, keep holy the Sabbath day. Right? That's what dad said. Dad, the father, he says, give me this whole day. The church, the mother says, all right, at least an hour, Okay. And sometimes we're like, well, I can't do an hour because I have soccer. <laughs> it's like, soccer's great. I love it. But come on. You get to encounter the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things who out of love for you is present in that host. And he wants you to do what you were made to do, just to worship, to give thanks, and to receive him in all that. We go there to offer our presence to him who offers his presence to us. We don't go there for the externals, to to be able to uh, uh, learn something new. If you do, that's great, but that's not the point. You got all the other hours of the week for that. You go there to give God your presence and to receive his presence in return. Okay, so that's the Mass. Now, adoration. So adoration is the extension of the Mass. The two are, are intimately linked. Basically, uh, over the progression of the church's self-understanding of who she is and who Jesus is in the sacraments, she realized that little moment in Mass where the host is elevated, God is present, and we are able to adore him. Since we love him, enough's not in our vocabulary. And we're like, ooh, those four seconds, that's not enough. You know what? Maybe, maybe we can adore him longer. Maybe since we always keep a little bit of uh, the, the consecrated species in the tabernacle to give to the sick, maybe we'll start giving extra reverence to our Lord in that blessed sacrament. Maybe we'll have periods of time where we ex- extend that moment of the Mass for like an hour or two hours. And eventually, maybe we'll have a- chapels of perpetual adoration, where 24-7 people are there adoring that same Jesus who walked and taught and healed and cast out demons. And maybe we can connect to him in a special way when we're in his sacred presence. And maybe he can still teach me something. Maybe he can still heal me. Maybe he can still cast out that demon. And I can attest to the fact that that's where vocations grow, <laughs> right? My vocation grew in the Perpetual Adoration Chapel at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish. That is my favorite place on planet Earth, bar none. 
right? I, I have been obscenely blessed to be able to travel to some excellent places. My favorite place was on Sarah Road, right? Because uh, there, the, the, the Lord is present and waiting. And we might sometimes feel such a distance between us and God, and we might just need some Eucharistic radiation therapy, right? That, that's what we get for when there's a cancer in our body, radiation therapy can help to kill the bad. Might be uncomfortable sometimes. Well, that's an understatement. But Eucharistic radiation therapy can be that place where the sin in us is slowly killed. We have to bring it to him. <laughs> and sometimes when we only give God two, three minutes of prayer, we, we shouldn't be shocked that we're only ever superficial in our prayer and only ever at the surface when it comes to our healing. Entering into extended times of adoration, like the venerable practice of the holy hour, is beautiful because it forces you to get to, the, to hit that wall. You know, any runners here? Yeah, you're running, you're running, you're running, and then you hit the wall, right? Where you're just like, oh, I just want to give up, but I know that I can't be tired yet. Okay, fine, I'll just keep going. You break through that wall, and you're like, yes, I'm an Olympian, this is great. Um, and then you crash afterward. Uh, <laughs> In prayer, we hit a wall as well. And too often, when we hit that wall, we don't persevere. We don't move through it. To be able to say, you know what, God, I'm giving you these 60 minutes. I'm going to stay here. And I might be bored and I might fall asleep even. I, I might have to go through different forms of prayer because my mind might keep wandering, but I'm giving you this time. And sometimes that's what you need to go under the surface and to do that deeper work of your heart's healing that the Lord wants to do. Final bit, because getting up to time like I always do. Um, frequent spiritual communions. When uh, Eucharistic devotion was growing in the church, and, and you can read so many saints of some of the most beautiful things to, to write about how they love the Lord in that sacrament and how he has loved them. There was this practice of doing frequent spiritual communions. Now, I know that that might evoke PTSD in some of you because of the pandemic, right? When everybody was like, a spiritual communion's the same, wink, wink. Like, uh, that was a tough time for us. It's going to take a while to rebuild a lot of that trust that was lost. But that doesn't mean that the spiritual communion is the baby that we need to throw out with the bathwater. There are some saints that had the, the practice of every hour on the hour stopping what they said it was stopping what they did and making a spiritual communion, saying, Lord, I know that you, by just the miracle of your love, are present in the most blessed sacrament. I, right now, I'm at work. I can't go to Mass and receive you. Or I've already received you today, and I don't want to, like, multiply my receptions of you irreverently or something like that. Regardless of what my reasons are, I cannot right now physically receive you, but I, I want that oneness with you in my soul. And to be able to connect to the Lord who loves you so much in the Blessed Sacrament, no matter where you are, is a beautiful practice that I think we need to bring back. I think that's what helped sustain the persecuted Christians when they were in their prison cells. I think that's what has been among the sources of joy for the saints that have carried the church through her darkest hours. And I know that Eucharistic devotion in this group right here 
It's when it is what is going to help us be the saints of the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. You might look around and be like, is this all we got? <laughs> yeah, it is. And the Lord can work through it. Right? All of the saints were weirdos in their own ways. <laughs> and, and all of them were sinners, and all of them had weaknesses, but all of them had Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And that is ultimately what became the source of their joy, which was the only proper response to all that was wrong in the world. Joy in the presence of Jesus rather than anger at the absence of him elsewhere. May that presence of Jesus be what gives us joy, which will make us those saints that the world needs. Thank you.